Welcome to Daily Airs. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials, or items read on Airs LA, are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. December 18. On this date in history in the year 1912, the fraudulent Piltdown Man fossil is discovered. After three years of digging in the Piltdown gravel pit in Sussex, England, Amateur archaeologist Charles Dawson announces the discovery of two skulls that appear to belong to a primitive hominid and ancestor of man, along with a canine tooth, a tool carved from an elephant's tusk, and fossil teeth from a number of prehistoric animals. Despite muted criticism from a minority of paleontologists, the majority of the scientific community hailed the so-called Piltdown Man as the missing evolutionary link between ape and man. The remains were estimated to be up to a million years old. For the next decade, scientists herald the finding of Euanthropus Dawsoni, or Dawson's Dawn Man in Latin, as confirmation of Darwin's still controversial theory of human evolution. In the 1920s and 30s, however, the Piltdown gravels were found to be much less ancient than believed, and other finds of human ancestors around the world seemed to call the authenticity of the Piltdown man into question. In 1953, at an international congress of paleontologists, the Piltdown man was first openly called a fraud. An intensive study of the remains showed that they were made up of a modern human cranium, no more than 600 years old, the jaw and teeth of an orangutan, and the tooth of a chimpanzee. Microscopic tests indicated that the teeth had been doctored with a file-like tool to make them seem more human. Scientists also found that the bones had been treated with chemicals to make them appear older. Other fossils found in the Piltdown Quarry proved to be authentic, but of types not found in Britain. The person who orchestrated the hoax never came forward, but in 1996, a trunk in storage at the British Museum was found to contain fossils treated in the exact same manner as the Piltdown remains. The trunk bore the initials M-A-C-H, which seemed to suggest that Martin A.C. Hinton, a volunteer at the British Museum in 1912 and later a curator of zoology at the institution, was likely the culprit. Some theorized that he was attempting to embarrass Arthur Smith Woodward, curator of the British Museum's paleontology department, because Woodward had refused Hinton's request for a weekly pay raise. December 19. On this date in history, in the year 1843, A Christmas Carol is published. Dickens was born in 1812 and attended school in Portsmouth. His father, a clerk in the Navy Pay Office, was thrown into debtor's prison in 1824, and 12-year-old Charles was sent to work in a factory. 
the miserable treatment of children, and the institution of the debtor's jail became topics of several of Dickens' novels. In his late teens, Dickens became a reporter and started publishing humorous short stories when he was 21. In 1836, a collection of his stories, Sketches by Boz, later known as the Posthumous Papers of the Pickwick Club, was published. The same year, he married Catherine Hogarth, with whom he would have nine children. The short sketches in his collection were originally commissioned as captions for humorous drawings by caricature artist Robert Seymour. But Dickens's whimsical stories about the kindly Samuel Pickwick and his fellow club members soon became popular in their own right. Only 400 copies were printed in the first installment, but by the 15th episode, 40,000 copies were printed. When the stories were published in book form in 1837, Dickens quickly became the most popular author of the day. The success of the Pickwick Papers was soon reproduced with Oliver Twist in 1838 and Nicholas Nickleby in 1839. In 1841, Dickens published two more novels, then spent five months in the United States, where he was welcomed as a literary hero. Dickens never lost momentum as a writer, churning out major novels every year or two, often in serial form. Among his most important works are David Copperfield in 1850, Great Expectations in 1861, and A Tale of Two Cities in 1859. Beginning in 1850, he published his own weekly circular of fiction, poetry, and essays called Household Words. In 1858, Dickens separated from his wife and began a long affair with a young actress. He gave frequent readings, which became immensely popular. He died in 1870, at the age of 58, with his last novel, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, still unfinished. December 20. On this date in history, in the year 1957, Elvis Presley is drafted. On December 20, 1957, while spending the Christmas holidays at Graceland, his newly purchased Tennessee mansion, rock and roll star Elvis Presley receives his draft notice for the United States Army. With a suggestive style, one writer called him Elvis the Pelvis, a hit movie, Love Me Tender, and a string of gold records including Heartbreak Hotel, Blue Suede Shoes, Hound Dog, and Don't Be Cruel, Presley had become a national icon and the world's first bona fide rock and roll star by the end of 1956. As the Beatles' John Lennon once famously remarked, before Elvis, there was nothing. The following year at the peak of his career, Presley received his draft notice for a two-year stint in the Army. Fans sent tens of thousands of letters to the Army asking for him to be spared. But Elvis would have none of it. He received one deferment during which he finished working on the movie King Creel before being sworn in as an army private in Memphis on March 24, 1958. After basic training, which included an emergency leave to see his beloved mother Gladys before she died in August 1958, Presley sailed to Europe on the USS General Randall. For the next 18 months, he served in Company D, 32nd Tank Battalion, 3rd Armor Division in Friedberg, Germany, where he attained the rank of sergeant. For the rest of his service, he shared an off-base residence with his father, grandmother, and some Memphis friends. 
After working during the day, Presley returned home at night to host frequent parties and impromptu jam sessions. At one of these, an army buddy of Presley's introduced him to 14-year-old Priscilla Bolio, whom Elvis would marry some years later. Meanwhile, Presley's manager, Colonel Tom Parker, continued to release singles recorded before his departure, keeping the money rolling in and his famous client fresh in the public's mind. December 21. On this date in history, in the year 1970, President Nixon meets Elvis Presley. Rock star Elvis Presley is greeted at the White House by President Richard M. Nixon. Presley's visit was not just a social call. He wanted to meet Nixon in order to offer his services in the government's war on drugs. Three weeks earlier, Presley, who wanted to distance himself from rock and roll's unseemly association with drug use and the counterculture, had met Nixon's vice president, Spiro Agnew, in Palm Springs, California, and offered to use his celebrity status to help promote the administration's anti-drug campaign. Presley then flew to Washington, checking into a hotel under an alias on December 20. The next day, he and two of his bodyguards proceeded to the White House gates, where Presley handed the guard a handwritten letter. In the letter, Presley told Nixon he did not associate or agree with the drug culture hippie elements, student protesters, and Black Panthers whom he believed hated America. He declared that he wanted nothing but to help the country out and asked to be designated as federal agent at large. The guard immediately recognized Presley, but followed protocol and asked for permission to send him on to the White House. He apparently was not searched before being granted admission. Upon meeting Nixon, he presented the president with a gift, a World War II-era Colt 45 pistol. The two were photographed shaking hands, Nixon in a conservative suit and tie, and Elvis wearing tight purple velvet pants and an open-collared shirt with jeweled chains, a purple velvet cape slung over his shoulder, and an enormous belt buckle. Nixon and the King exchanged pleasantries and agreed that those who use drugs are in the vanguard of American protest. Presley again reiterated his desire to do whatever he could to help influence young people and fellow musicians to reject drugs and anti-Americanism. At the conclusion of the brief meeting, Presley surprised Nixon with a hug. On December 31, Nixon wrote a thank-you note to Presley for the gift of the pistol and for visiting him at the White House. He said nothing about enlisting Presley's aid in the war on drugs, however. The administration's ambivalence about the idea was illustrated in his aides' correspondence at the time. In an inter-office White House memo dashed off the morning of December 21, the day of Presley's impromptu White House visit, Nixon's aide, Dwight Chapin, suggested that Elvis not be pushed off on the vice president, but be introduced directly to Nixon. He further noted that if Nixon wanted to meet bright young people outside the government, Presley might be the one to start with. Aide H.R. Haldeman responded, You must be kidding. In the end, Nixon never offered Elvis an official position in the administration's war on drugs. Presley died from heart failure in 1977, which the coroner's report said was due to undetermined causes. Speculation abounded, however, that his death was caused by a lethal mix of a variety of prescription drugs and obesity. December 22. On this date in history, in the year 1808, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony given world premiere in Vienna.
if the initial reviews failed to recognize it as one of the greatest pieces of music ever written, one needs to understand the adverse conditions under which the work was first heard. The concert venue was freezing cold, and it was more than two hours into a mammoth four-hour program before the piece began. And the orchestra played poorly enough that day to force the nearly deaf composer, also acting as conductor and pianist, to stop the ensemble partway into one passage and start again from the very beginning. It was, all in all, a very inauspicious beginning for what would soon become the world's most recognizable piece of classical music, Ludwig von Beethoven's Symphony No. 5 in C minor, Op. 67, the Fifth Symphony which received its world premiere on December 22, 1808. Also premiering that day at the theater on Der Wien in Vienna were Beethoven's Piano Concerto No. 4 in G Major, Op. 58, and the Symphony No. 6 in F Major, Op. 68, the Pastoral Symphony. But it was the Fifth Symphony that, despite its shaky premiere, would eventually be recognized as Beethoven's greatest achievement to that point in his career. Writing in 1810, the critic E.T.A. Hoffman praised Beethoven for having outstripped the great Haydn and Mozart with a piece that opens the realm of the colossal and immeasurable to us, evokes terror, fright, horror, and pain, and awakens that endless longing that is the essence of romanticism. That assessment would stand the test of time and the Fifth Symphony would quickly become a centerpiece of the classical repertoire for orchestras around the world. But beyond its revolutionary qualities as a serious composition, the Fifth Symphony has also proven to be a work with enormous pop-cultural staying power, thanks primarily to its powerful four-note opening motif, three short Gs followed by a long E-flat. Used in World War II-era Britain to open broadcasts of the BBC because it mimicked the Morse code V for victory, and used in the disco-era United States by Walter Murphy as the basis for his unlikely number one pop hit, A Fifth of Beethoven, the opening notes of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony have become a kind of instantly recognizable musical shorthand since they were first heard by the public. December 23. On this date in history, in the year 1888, Vincent van Gogh chops off his ear. Dutch painter Vincent van Gogh, suffering from severe depression, cuts off the lower part of his left ear with a razor while staying in Arles, France. He later documented the event in a painting titled Self-Portrait with Bandaged Ear. Today, van Gogh is regarded as an artistic genius and his masterpieces sell for record-breaking prices. However, during his lifetime, he was a poster boy for tortured, starving artists and sold only one painting. Vincent Wilhelm van Gogh was born on March 30, 1853 in the Netherlands. He had a difficult, nervous personality and worked unsuccessfully at an art gallery and then as a preacher among poor miners in Belgium. In 1880, he decided to become an artist. His work from this period, the most famous of which is The Potato Eaters in 1885, is dark and somber and reflective of the experiences he had among peasants and impoverished miners. In 1886, Van Gogh moved to Paris where his younger brother Theo, with whom he was close, lived. 
Theo, an art dealer, supported his brother financially and introduced him to a number of artists, including Paul Gauguin, Camille Pissarro, and Georges Seurat. Influenced by these and other painters, Van Gogh's only artistic style lightened up as he began using more color. In 1888, Van Gogh rented a house in Arles in the south of France, where he hoped to found an artist's colony and be less of a burden to his brother. In Arles, Van Gogh painted vivid scenes from the countryside as well as still lifes, including his famous sunflower series. Gauguin came to stay with him in Arles, and the two men worked together for almost two months. However, tensions developed, and on December 23rd, in a fit of dementia, Van Gogh threatened his friend with a knife before turning it on himself and mutilating his earlobe. Afterward, he allegedly wrapped up the ear and gave it to a prostitute in a nearby brothel. Following that incident, Van Gogh was hospitalized in Arles and then checked himself into a mental institution in St. Remy for the year. During his stay in St. Remy, he fluctuated between periods of madness and intense creativity in which he produced some of his best and most well-known works, including Starry Night and Irises. In May 1890, Van Gogh moved to Auvers-sur-Ouvaz, near Paris, where he continued to be plagued by despair and loneliness. On July 27, 1890, he allegedly shot himself and died two years later at the age of 37. December 24. On this date in history, in the year 1923, President Coolidge lights the first national Christmas tree. President Calvin Coolidge touches a button and lights up the first national Christmas tree to grace the White House grounds. Not only was this the first White House community Christmas tree, but it was the first to be decorated with electric lights, a strand of 2,500 red, white, and green bulbs. The balsam fir came from Coolidge's home state of Vermont and stood 48 feet tall. Several musical groups performed at the tree lighting ceremony, including the Epiphany Church Choir and the U.S. Marine Band. Later that evening, President Coolidge and First Lady Grace were treated to carols sung by members of Washington, D.C.'s First Congressional Church. According to the White House Historical Association, President Benjamin Harrison was the first president to set up an indoor Christmas tree for his family and visitors to enjoy in 1889. It was decorated with ornaments and candles. In 1929, First Lady Lou Henry Hoover oversaw that what would welcome an annual tradition of decorating the indoor White House tree. Since then, each First Lady's duties have included the trimming of the official White House tree. Coolidge's inauguration of the first indoor national Christmas tree initiated a tradition that has been repeated with every administration. In 1981, President Ronald Reagan began another custom by authorizing the first official White House ornament, copies of which were made available for purchase. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for December 18 through December 24. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio podcasts and more, we invite you to visit and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.